Today's sermon text is 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 7, 17. I will be reading a portion of that text from 4, 1b through 11. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 228. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Covenant had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of the covenant of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we praise you because you are the great king of all kings. And we thank you, God, for reigning over us in mercy and grace. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, would you make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. About 20 years ago, there was a theologian uh, named David Wells who wrote a series of books where he was kind of registering some concern with what he saw happening, a problem in kind of the evangelical world. So churches kind of up to that time, there had been decline in numbers and pundits all over the place were trying to figure out why are, why are numbers going down, what, is, what does this look like? And sometimes the solution offered was like, God just seems so big. We just look so different from what's happening out there. We just need to kind of 
do some things a little differently so that we are more attractive, that things, uh, you, you can come in and feel like you're, you're at home with what's going on and with maybe the God that we're worshiping. But David, David Wells said that, that that was a misdiagnosis of the problem and that the, the solution that was then put forward is a misapplication. So here, here's his analysis. This is there on your, your note sheet. This is from his book, God and the Wasteland. He says this, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique or insufficient organization or antiquated music. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially, too lightly upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. In other words, in trying to not lose people, the church started treating God less like the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything, and more like a homeboy or a co-pilot. And the weightiness and the glory of God was left aside. And if that's you or me or our church or the evangelical world problem, this text, this text that we're going to walk through today is, I think, a stark wake-up call to who this God is. It's a serious examination of the holiness and the glory of our God. Now, I want to frame, we are walking through four chapters this morning. That's a lot, okay, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to have the chance to read every single verse of this text. And we're going to kind of run through some of these stories. But I want to frame the question, with, uh, frame the sermon rather, with a question that's coming out of the text. So if, you're, if you have your Bible open in 1 Samuel uh, 4, where Linda just finished reading, you can look over to, just flip over a page or two to 1 Samuel 6, verse 20. And instead of kind of a main point that I hope you'll kind of see develop through the sermon, I just want to frame this with a key question. It's asked by some men of Israel here in the middle of verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? We're going to see the answer to that question unfold over kind of four movements throughout these four chapters. Some negative answers, what, who you cannot stand, and then at the very end, who it is that is able to stand. And my prayer for us is that as we look through these verses, as we explore these chapters, we would come to know and rightly see the holiness, the glory of the God that we worship. And that by the end of this morning, you would revel more. And the fact that we approach this holy God and are welcomed in through Christ. So that's what I'm praying for us in this time. Let me just set up kind of where we are. If you're a visitor, we're glad you're here. We just started a few weeks ago walking through the book of 1 Samuel. And last week we spent our time in chapters 2 and 3. And there there are two problems that are kind of pushed upon us in the text. So God's people have not heard the word of the Lord very frequently. The word of the Lord, we're told, in chapter 3 is rare. And so God, in his kindness, brings forth Samuel. He raises up Samuel as the one to hear God's word and bring it to all Israel. And not only were there rare prophets, but there was a problem with priests 
So the ones who were meant to be ministering to God from the people were wicked. Hophni and Phinehas, who you heard read about earlier. And even last week in verse, in chapters two and three, the Lord pronounced judgment against these two people, which brings us to 1 Samuel chapter four. And for the next several chapters, Samuel kind of, who's been the, the main character, who the book is, bears his name, but he really just kind of fades to the background for the most of these chapters. And the camera just pans out and looks at a bigger kind of nationwide problem. Okay. Israel and the Philistines are at war. And the first answer to our question of who can stand before the Lord is this in chapter four. Not those who try to manipulate him. Who can stand before the Lord? Not those who try to manipulate this God. Okay, so Linda read most of that story for us and the story does move quickly. Okay, Israel and Philistines, they're enemies. They battle near Ebenezer. Israel loses. There's 4,000 men killed in this battle. And so the elders of Israel, they ask this good question in chapter 4, verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us this day? And that's a, that's a great question. It's actually saying God is in control. He's sovereign. And what we hope to hear from that is what do we, what do we learn? What do we do? Where do we turn? But as soon as they ask that question, instead of, of seeking the Lord, they treat that as like a rhetorical question. They talk amongst themselves and they say, you know what we need? We need the Ark of the Covenant. Let's bring that up in here and let's take that out with us. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is a really important thing. It's a big deal. So if you read through, again, the Old Testament in Exodus 25, God tells the people that this is the place where he is going to dwell in a fixed kind of focal manner. So on the Day of Atonement, the the priest, he takes a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, and there is the Ark of the Covenant. It is the visible representation that God dwells in the midst of Israel. It's really, really important. Okay? And the Israelites actually have seen the Ark of the Covenant do, like, go along with some mighty works before. So, kids, do you remember before this, question for you guys, before this, there is a story in the book of Joshua where the Ark of the Covenant is a key part of the battle plan. Does anybody know what battle that is? Jackson? The Battle of Jericho. Well done. Yes, way to go, elder son. Um, the Battle of Jericho, right? They bring the Ark of the Covenant. They're told to take it with them to march around the city seven times. On that last day, blow their trumpets and it will fall. So maybe there's this memory of, you know, the Ark did its work back then. Let's get it today. And the army loves that idea, right? The Ark comes into the camp and there is this explosion of thunderous shouting Right, it's, it's like you, the, the team in the first half, you're, you're down by a few points. The coach comes in and gives the halftime speech. And everybody's all cheered up and riled up. And they say, yeah, let's go out and get them. That's what the ark is doing. They say, we can do this. We've got this little thing here. We're going to make it. And the Philistines, they're, they're in the locker room next door. And, and they hear all the shouting and think, what is, what is that about? And as soon as they hear that it's the ark of the covenant, they are terrified. In, in their minds, the, the Ark of the Covenant is like the Death Star, right? It's like planet-obliterating nightmare coming towards them. But then at the battle, everything that we expect, all this lead-up, 
is totally turned on its head. Let's look again at verse 10 of chapter 4. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. All the momentum in the world is going, swinging towards Israel, looking like it's going this way. But instead, they lose seven and a half times as many men as they did in the first battle. It's a rout in the second half. Not only that, but the, the opposing team captures their mascot, right, the Ark of the Covenant, and take it back. And then their two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed. And we should remember, at least in part, what we talked about last week, that this was the sign that the Lord had given that he was going to judge Eli and his house. He said, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will die on the same day. And though it may be tragic, the Lord keeps his word. And these two men die in battle. And the rest of the chapter details two deaths and a birth. Okay, so as soon as news of the, the loss of the battle gets back, there's, there's a messenger who comes back and is sharing the news with everybody, and Eli is blind, totally blind by this point, and the messenger comes to Eli and tells him, your, your sons have died, and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And as soon as he hears that the Ark of the Covenant is taken captive, he falls over from his seat and dies. And then when the wife of Phineas hears that her husband has died, that the Ark of the Covenant is taken, tragedy befalls again. She is pregnant and she goes into early labor and what should be a moment of joy comes to tragedy as this unnamed mother and wife dies. And she names her son this foreboding name, Ichabod, a name that means where is the glory? Where has the glory of God gone? And these, the last words, her dying words, are there in verse 22 of chapter 4 for us. The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now, where, where did all of this go wrong? What, what happened from Israel so that in verse 5, like they're shouting, it, it registers on the Richter scale, and by verse 13, they're shouting, but they're shouting in defeat. It's a, a cry that's risen up from them. Friends, the problem is that they thought that God was someone that they could twist and manipulate to their ends. After the first defeat, instead of calling upon the Lord and seeking His wisdom and guidance, they just patch together something that they, they think, this will get us what we want. And what they wanted was victory, not God. What they wanted was a quick path to winning. And they think that this religious relic, the ark, can twist God's arm to ultimately get them what they want. Now we, I assume, that you're probably, uh, you don't have a religious relic. That's an assumption that I'm just going to make on most or all of you. I know, I know some people, I know some friends who... Uh, who worked with others who had a crystal or a talisman or something who said, this is, this is what keeps me safe. But we, we may say, well, we're, we're more sophisticated like that. We won't treat uh, a cross necklace or something like that, like a rabbit's foot or an ancient talisman. But we are plenty tempted to try and use God 
as a means to get something else. There's a, a recent article that came out this week actually in Baptist Press talking about a, a 2022 study from Lifeway. And the title of the article is Prosperity Gospel Beliefs on the Rise Among Churchgoers. And it was a study done just asking not, not just people who claim to be uh, Protestant on surveys, but people who actually were, were going to church, who were attending fairly regularly. And the question was, uh, do you agree or disagree with this? My church teaches that if I give more money to my church and charities, God will then bless me in return. Now, there's, there's a way, kind of what Corey is saying, of storing up treasures in heaven. You can think of, like, I'm, I'm, I'm investing in eternity in some ways, but, but I'm afraid, and I know people who have said, if I kind of put in this, then I will get back here. God, God has turned into, like, the cosmic vending machine at that point. I put in my quarter, I spend the dial, I wait maybe a few seconds, maybe a few weeks or months or years, but eventually the prize kind of drops at the bottom and I get it here. Pastors Sean DeMars and Mike McKinley, this quote's there on your note sheet, they try to unmask the, what they see as the twistedness of this kind of prosperity gospel theology. They say in the end, the prosperity gospel in the God, prosperity gospel, rather, God is spoken of primarily as a means to an end. It treats a relationship with God like marrying someone for their money. You don't really love them. You just love them for what they can give you. And this, may, and this does show up kind of in more mundane ways as well. You may say, well, I'm, I'm, I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I've not fallen prone to that. But, but there are other ways we can see this kind of bear out. Uh, maybe you have seen the Netflix series Last Chance You. Uh, it follows a football team the first two seasons. At least it's a documentary following a junior college football team in Scuba, Mississippi. And it's where a lot of Division One prospects, if they have academic trouble or uh, other types of trouble with the law, things, they, they'll come there trying to get back into Division One athletics. And, and the, the show does, I'm not recommending the show, the show has a, a mature rating because of language, at least. A lot with the players, more so with the coaches. But if you see what the coaches do every single game, and some of you may have like experienced this if you played high school football, if they want to pump their players up, there's a profanity-laced kind of pump-up speech followed by the Lord's Prayer. Right? The Lord's Prayer is how we go out on the field. So what we say it kind of covers up all that stuff we just did. And we're going to say it because hopefully it gets God on our side for the next 60 minutes or so. Christian brothers and sisters, in, in thinking about your, your own walk, are you tempted to treat God as nothing more than a way to get something else that you want? Are you tempted to hold on and say, I, I want this thing and if God will get it for me, then I'll just kind of trot him out like the Ark of the Covenant. If I give enough money or if I get up and do my quiet time like seven days in a row, I'll ace that test. Or I, my, my marriage is just going to get better if I do enough good deeds. Or if you want to kind of put yourself in the shoes of these Israelites. When something goes wrong, do you automatically turn to technique? And say, you know what, I, I just... I need to pray, we need to pray the Lord's Prayer twice as loudly next week. And then we'll get the W. We can be tempted in our own sin, in our own wanting to get other things from God. 
to treat him as nothing more than just kind of our path to a better, higher goal. But you will not stand before the Lord on the final day if you use him for that. You have shown that your God is that other thing that you wanted. And he has just been a tool in your tool belt. Friends, who, who is going to stand before the Lord? Not those who try to manipulate him. So there at the end of chapter 4, the glory has departed Israel. It's gone into Philistine territory. And the Philistines, like, uh, think about when you win a victory. So, again, lots of sports analogies today. If you win a victory, there's this parade down the, the center streets. We were, Laura and I live in Chicago with the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup. And there is a, there's a parade and it takes up blocks and blocks and millions of people come out to go see the Stanley Cup parade through the cities. And that's probably what the Philistines have in mind. We're going to show everybody how awesome we have been as we take the Ark of the Covenant on our victory lap through Philistia. And that's not exactly how this turns out in chapter 5, where we get the second answer to our question. Who is able to stand before the Lord? Not false gods or those who worship Him. Okay, so turn to chapter 5. I'm going to read, again, not all of this, but just some of this story so you see that no false gods or those who worship Him will ultimately stand. So verse 1 of chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. It's one of their cities. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon, by the way, is like their chief god, their principal god worshipped by the Philistines. And again, bringing bringing the Ark into the temple is a sign of like, look at our god. We're going to put the trophy right in front of him because he's better and we're going to put the spoil at his feet. But look what happens next. Look at verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, go check on their trophy. Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold only the trunk of dagon was left for him these few verses there they're meant i think to be somewhat humorous they're dripping with irony the philistines are trying to display the great glory of dagon the god who gave them victory but on his home court his own turf in his temple dagon has no choice but to fall down To look like he is the one who is submitting before Yahweh, before the Lord. And then the almighty Dagon, the great one, has to be what? He has to be picked up like a decrepit, lifeless hunk of wood or metal that it actually is and put in its place. Poor poor guy cannot just lift himself up. This is what if we, we actually read some of this type of language in our call to worship in Psalm and Isaiah 40 rather. But Isaiah again picks up on this type of language in Isaiah 46. This is on your note sheet. Just listen in verses three and four at the power of God. Okay, start with the power of God. Verses three and four of Isaiah 46. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. 
and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. And then, then Isaiah flips this and says, let's look then at the, the false god, the impotence of these false gods. And Isaiah 46, 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, he makes it into a god. And then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Dagon is the God who has to be carried. And he just can't keep himself upright in the story. He falls down a second time in a row. And this time he's exposed for what he is a flimsy piece of craftsmanship. Nothing more. Dagon lies headless and handless on the floor of his own house, which is why in verse 6, so just look at chapter 5, verse 6, I think, again, the author is just pouring on irony as he points out the contrast between these two gods. Dagon has no hands, but verse 6 says, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And this kind of battle of the gods that Yahweh has won, has shown that he's won, it begins this game of Ark of the Covenant hot potato throughout the Philistine cities. So they, they think, uh, verse 7, the people of Ashdod, they get together and they say this, the Ark of God, the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So the city of Ashdod, they, they have these tumors come upon them. I have no idea what kind of tumors they are. If you want to, you can ask one of the many doctors here and they can speculate for you. But there, there's some tumors that come upon the city and they say, we don't want these. So we, we need to get him somewhere else. And, and they're still operating on this kind of Philistine, idolatrous kind of idea, I think. So Ashdod is a city that's by the Mediterranean Sea. It's pretty close to it, at least. So they think, uh, you know, maybe maybe this God is like really powerful around the water. And let's kind of move them inland to Gath. Maybe in Gath, the statues of Dagon, the other people, they'll fare better there. But they move the, they move the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the Lord strikes Gath with the exact same things. And by the time they move the Ark to the third city, Ekron, the people of Ekron have heard of what's going on. And they're lined up on the road. They see the Ark coming towards them. And in verse 10, they say, they have brought around to us the Ark of the God of Israel to kill us. And our people, they're terrified of this God now. And it's a, a, a symbol. This, this story is, again, hearkening back to what we saw at the very beginning in Hannah's prayer. Remember Hannah prayed, and we talked about this briefly on our, the first Sunday in this. In chapter 2, verse 2, she says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none, none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Israel may have been defeated twice, but God will fight for himself. And this, this story just exposes, exposes in clear relief the foolishness of idolatry. How, how absurd that you would worship a God that has to be carried, one who cannot defend himself. The, these gods, there is nothing behind them. No breath 
no life. And ultimately, there is no hope behind them. But tragically, the Philistines don't, don't learn the, the lesson of this. They, they shuffle the ark around. They continue in their idolatry. In the face of the one true and living God, they don't turn to him. Sin, friends, is stubborn. Rebellion is intractable. It is difficult, hard to get out. And I, we, we should, in this story, we should leave this story seeing these false gods as pathetic. They can't do anything. But, but as we see that, we should also leave the story thinking those that worship these false gods are pitiable. They are, they are not turning. For people like these Philistines, for people like the animistic Maasai tribe in Tanzania or the Brahmins in India who are committed to Hinduism, those who in North Korea are trapped behind like an iron wall of atheism, the Western Punjabi people of Pakistan who spend their lives bowing down five times a day to pray to the false god of Islam, we should say that all of those gods are meaningless. There is nothing there. And we should say that every one of those people who are stuck in idolatry are valuable. They are created in the image of God and they are meant to worship the one true and living God. And so we should be moved, even in this story, and as we think and as we pray, even as David prayed for us this morning, we should be moved to pity and to prayer for those who are caught in idolatry. Because the sad and very sobering reality is that one day these people will find themselves exposed. Their God will be shown for what it is. Their God will just collapse into nothing like Dagon. They'll be exposed for the created things that will be unable to carry their followers. And that's not just true of these gods who have like statues, right? Uh, you could say, well, that, how foolish to, to bow down to that statue. But the gods of the West are just as feeble and frail and breakable. Uh, a tribesman in the, the jungle of South America, he may say he wants comfort and protection in his old age. So he, he goes to his ancestors and prays or bows down to an idol of some sort. And a respectable businessman in suburban Birmingham may want comfort and protection in his old age. And instead of going to bow down to an idol, he hoards his money and thinks that his protection and comfort will be found there. That he hopes that it's enough. And both of them will be nothing on the final day. Your sophistication will not save you. It does not matter if your God is made of gold or it's actually just money. It will fall. And neither, neither for that matter does your sincerity. The, these, these people, these Philistines, we assume they believe with all their heart that Dagon is the real God. But that will not save them. It does not matter how sincere you are. You can be sincerely wrong. And here the Lord is exposing, lifting up the curtain and saying, these gods will not stand. And everyone who puts on them the weight and hope that we have, that we can find life and joy and comfort and peace in them, on that final day, they will not stand either. Who will stand before this holy God? Not, not false gods 
or those who worship them. Now, back in 1 Samuel, after seven months of this kind of divine rampage of the ark going through, the Philistines have had enough. So in chapter 6, they come up with this plan on how they're going to get rid of the ark of the covenant. If you thought five tumors was weird, like what they decide to do is a little weirder still. So they say they're going to make five golden statues of these tumors and five statues of mice. And I, I don't know. I don't know. They realize that there is something that needs to be done, that this God is holy and he, he, he's holy. We've got to figure out something. But as far as their idolatry takes them is golden statues of mice, golden statues of tumors. So they're going to put these and offer those up to this God. They're going to take two milk cows, so cows who have never borne a yoke, who have calves at home, and they're going to yoke them. They're going to put the Ark of the Covenant, these golden tumors, these golden mice on there, and they're going to send it off towards Israel. And these are mama cows. They're used to milking their, to, to nursing their young. They say they, they leave the calves at home. So if they do what comes naturally, these cows, they're, they're going to just like stop or they're going to turn back around so they can go get to their calves. And if that happens, then the Philistines, they say, this is just the most bizarre coincidence we've ever had. The tumor kind of thing going around, just a coincidence. But if these cows who have never, never dragged anything before, who naturally would want to go back, if they just go straight to Israel, we will know. We will know that this has been a divine judgment from the God of Israel. And so they, they carry out their plan. They yoke these cows, they load them up, they set them on their way, and they get a very clear answer. You can look and see it in chapter 6, verse 12. It says, The cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, a city of Israel, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. And when it gets there, the people of this city in Israel, they are thrilled to see the ark. They they offer up burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord and thanksgiving. The ark has returned to its place. The glory that has departed from chapter 4, they may say, well, the glory of Israel has returned. And that would be a really great place for this story to end if you wanted to write like a they lived happily ever after kind of fairy tale. But that's not the way this story ends. Look at chapter 6, verse 19. The ark has come back. Verse 19 says, And he, the Lord, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. And to whom shall he go up away from us? Even in that last question, they sound more like Philistines than they do Israel. So, so what's exactly the problem here? Okay, I just want to kind of, what, what is, what happened so that these people were struck down? So in the ESV, it says that they looked upon the ark. So it, it has to mean a little bit more than they just kind of see it with their eyes, right? Because the ark does come to them down the road and they see it and rejoice so it's it's more than just looking with your eyes visibly 
If you have an NASB or a CSB or an NIV, I think they translate this as they look in the Ark of the Covenant. So they open the, the top uh, where, see, where the tablets of Moses are kept, something that is strictly forbidden. And I did almost name my sermon Raiders of the Real Ark because of that. And if you have Indiana Jones going through your head, just let it stay there for a moment and then you just come back here. Um, but I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's what happened. Maybe they lift up the ark and they see, they look inside and the Lord strikes them for their impiety, for disobeying the Lord. But, but even if they don't lift it up and look inside, they're still treating the presence. The presence of the living God in their midst is some sort of trivial light matter. There's a commentator who said it's, it, it's like they may be viewing it as a tourist attraction. You know, come buy a ticket and you can see the bearded lady and right beside the bearded lady, the ark. It's back. Come look at it. It's great. But the weightiness of God does not land on them. They have not learned the lesson from chapter 4. God still sits lightly upon Israel. So who is able to stand before the Lord? Not those who trivialize him. Tim Chester is a, a British commentator. He's wrote this reflecting on this incident. He says, Dagon falling down before Yahweh is hilarious. We, we naturally delight in the humor of the episode. But this incident takes us by surprise. It shocks and sobers us, or at least it should. We cannot take God lightly. To have God among us is a weighty matter. It is as if his holiness is nuclear. And that, friends, is the heart of the matter. That is the problem, the thing that has been rising up and bubbling up in all three of this chapter, of these chapters. God is perfectly holy. And he demonstrates that over and over. Approaching him is not a light matter. And it's not something we do on our own terms. We, we could like make some focus groups and come up with thousands of different ways that may make sense in our own minds that we want to approach God that might feel wise to us, but they are insufficient. And that's why when you get to chapter 7, after all of this destruction, chapter 7 rings as good news of hope and grace. Who is able to stand before the Lord? Only, only those who approach Him in repentance and faith in Christ. Chapter 7, verse 1. It says there that the people of Bethshemesh, they send the ark away. They again, they've kind of, they look more like Philistines. They send the ark away to the people of Kiriath-Jerim. And after the entire debacle of chapters 4 through 6, I'm going to read a fair amount of chapter 7 just so you hear the contrast from what Linda read earlier to what is happening here in chapter 7. Okay, so start there in chapter 7, verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And that, that should just bring you back kind of the context of where we are. That should ring in your ears of like judges, right? The people realize something is wrong, so they lament and turn back after the Lord. Verse 3, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you 
and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. What's what's happening there? They're, they're repenting. They, they've had their hands full of like all these idols and they have seen the Lord as like some religious glitter that you kind of sprinkle on top. We're just going to put him on top of all these other idols. He can be the mascot. And by this time, they realize you, you can't do that. He, he bodes no rivals. So they, they put all of them away. They turn from the things they were grasping. They turn back to the Lord. But the Philistines, they hear all of Israel's gathered together and they think opportunity. So this is verse 7 of chapter 7. The Philistines heard the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah. They're maybe thinking, hey, 20 years ago we routed them. Let's do it again. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. But then look at how different their response is now. In verse, in verse 8 of chapter 7. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They, they have faith, right? Not, not just in like this religious relic or like we got the right technique. Now we kind of twist God on our side, but in the real living God of the universe, they say, perhaps he will save us, that he might save us. Verse 9. We kind of see the conclusion, the, the climax of this story. Verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. What, what a different story. What night and day difference from chapter 4 to chapter 7. Right, the people here, they've turned from their sin. They're seeking their safety only in the hands of the Lord. Their, their new prophet, their new priest, Samuel, he is offering sacrifice and interceding on their behalf. They finally have found the way to approach God rightly. In repentance and faith, the way by, by, that God had told them all along, right back in the law, the way that God had told them to. And they go back to that, and when they approach God rightly, instead of them being struck down, God fights for them and keeps them safe. Friends, this, this story in chapter 7 is just a small microcosm, a little portrait of the good news that the whole Bible is trying to tell you, that is trying to tell us. If you come away from these four chapters and, and you think that God can be dangerous, you're right. Remember the story, maybe you, I, I said this last week in core training. I love, I love novels, I love reading, I love fantasy novels even. And so like the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this little scene where 
the children are talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. They hear that Aslan is coming. And they're like, I think it's Susan asks, like, is, is Aslan a man? And Mrs. Beaver says, oh, no, he's, he's not a man. Aslan's a lion. He's the king of the jungle. And, and little Lucy says, oh, is, is he safe then? And Mr. Beaver responds, says, safe? No. But he's good. Friends, this, our, our God is perfectly holy. And his holiness, use Tim Chester's phrase, is nuclear. Our sin and his presence is deadly for us. But in his mercy, he has made a way. He has made a way for us to draw near to him. If you want to stand before the Lord, your only hope is by turning and clinging to him. By repenting and turning your back on sin and finding life in him. And not, not only that, but we see Samuel here doing some work all along the way. They're, they're not just going straight to him. They're saying to Samuel, would, would you intercede for us? And Samuel goes in before them and he is sacrificing to the Lord and praying for them. Carrying out the work of a faithful prophet and priest. And friends, for all the good that Samuel did, we have a faithful mediator who is far superior to him. One who offered up his own body as our sacrifice. And and who, we are told, even today, is interceding for you. Who is able to stand before the Lord? Paul gives us an answer in Romans 5. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. At the very conclusion of this story, near the very end, Samuel raises up a stone. Uh, he calls it, he calls his name Ebenezer. It's a word you've heard earlier. It's where they were in chapter four. By the end of chapter seven, he's raising up the stone, calling it Ebenezer. We'll sing of this even in a moment, but he named it that. It's saying, till now or thus far, the Lord has helped us. And that, that stone was meant to be a reminder. It was meant to stand for people around them and maybe even the generations after them to see this visual symbol that those who repent of idolatry, who place their faith in the Lord, they find deliverance. And we, we may not have like a, a rock or an altar or something as Christians that we, we look to today, no like physical, maybe manifestation like that, but, but we have a place that we see this reminder. We can know that this our deliverance is found in Christ and we do still have a place that we look And I'll close with this quote from Tim Chester. For Christians, our Ebenezer is the cross. At the cross, we see the seriousness of sin and the weight of glory and God's generous help to sinners. We raise up the cross and say, thus far the Lord has helped us. And if he has helped us by giving his own son then surely he will bring us safely home to glory. 
he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who is able, friend, to stand before the Lord? It is only those who are hidden in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your undeserved mercy. Lord, we recognize your perfection and holiness. And in light of that, as we look at ourselves, even as we confessed earlier, we see that we need, that we cannot approach you without a mediator. And so we thank you for Christ. We thank you that By his blood, you have purchased us so that we now stand before you through faith. Would you lift him high in our sight? Would you send us even forward into our neighborhoods and our communities, knowing that we, and praying for those around us, that they would see Christ? That for all the ways that we are tempted to approach you, for all the ways that they are tempted to approach you, that they will fall short But Lord, you say that you will carry your people. So will you bring the nations to your son Jesus and carry them to yourself? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.